Lecture 8, Two Brains, Dual Process Theory. Welcome back to the Science of Irrationality. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, a way of thinking about all these errors, these cognitive errors that, uh, that we are realizing that we make from time to time. And, and so I'm going to give you an overview of something that is itself a heuristic it's it's a metaphor for something that seems to be happening in our reasoning, uh, and it's called a dual processing theory, uh, and it comes under the the uh, label of system one and system two. Uh, very clever names, aren't they? System one and system two. Uh, basically, this theory, this dual processing theory suggests that we are at all times of two minds. And keep in mind, this is just a metaphor. It's just a way of thinking about this, but it helps a little bit in understanding. Uh, so, so we have two minds, both operating simultaneously. System one uh, deals with certain kinds of problems. It is a quick-acting, intuitive system, uh, emotional, uh, and when it's engaged, it it uh, we have no real sense of effort involved or concentration. It just it just goes on its own. Uh, system two, on the other hand, deals with problems more deliberately. Uh, it is you, you have a sense of of effort involved. Uh, it's what we use when we do mental calculations or try to figure something out. So it is effortful. Requires attention, concentration. And one of the things that particularly interesting for us in in this course is that at times, uh, there, first of all, it's true that system one in particular is prone to making mistakes, as we will see, uh, but also that the two systems, system one and system two, can be in conflict with each other and uh, have to sort of fight it out. And we'll those are particularly interesting cases. And, uh, and we'll talk about those as we go on. So, system one activities, just so that you get a sense of what the, the, how this, this framework uh, works, uh, system one would be involved in some of the following activities, such as if you meet some people you've never met before and you want to determine who appears to be the friendliest of the, of the group, uh, it would be system one that that does that. Uh, if you're reading words on a billboard, you know, as they're going by, uh, something that is almost automatic. It is pretty much automatic for most of us. It's it's almost impossible not to read them if you're looking in that direction. Um, if you're solving a problem like two plus two, right? It doesn't take any figuring to come up with the right answer. Generally, we all know the answer is five. No, I'm just kidding, four. Um, uh, So uh, driving also, this is a common example, is driving down a familiar road when there's no traffic. Again, it's almost automatic. It does not require mental effort. Uh, Sometimes we forget we've even done it when we arrive at work. Uh, and, and then simple perceptual things like judging which line is longer than another line and so on. So all of those things would be system one activities. And you can see that some of them have an emotional component. Some of them are just automatic. 
um, but they don't require a lot of effort. In contrast, System 2 activities would be things like, if I were to ask you, instead of 2 plus 2 equals, if I were to ask you, what is 24 times 17? Now, that's probably not something that's been memorized and would acquire, require some calculation. The answer is 408. Uh, but, uh, but it is something that, uh, that requires that System 2 part of our brain. I don't want to say brain, actually. Part of us. Uh, we don't know exactly where it is. It's probably in the brain somewhere, but I don't want to give it a physical uh, location, really. Uh, another other system two activities might be things like searching your memory for a person's name, something that I have to do more often these days. Uh, uh, counting the number of people in a photograph. Counting is a sort of deliberate task that involves memory and, and so forth. Uh, and then a driving example that isn't automatic, uh, parking a car in a tight space, you would be required to think about what the next thing to do would be and how, how that would work out. So, so uh, this is the basic framework of, of this dual processing model uh, or theory. And, uh, and we're going to be now able to look back on some of the things we've talked about in this course and see how they fit into this framework and have a sort of understanding of them. And we will uh, use it for some new things going forward, too. So it's a, it is a useful heuristic. I don't want to give it the status of a, a physical object, but it is a, a useful way to think about these things that we do. Uh, according to the theory, the, the goal for System 1 is to save labor. One of the things that that uh, that it is often thought in cognitive psychology is that we have sort of limited capacity, and by that limited capacities of concentration and effort and being able to do things. And so, therefore, if some things can be put on the back burner and be automatic, then that allows the rest of the brain to be free to do the tougher stuff, and uh, and saves saves energy. So. So uh, system one activities are quick and relatively easy, and they do employ heuristics. Uh, you know, they do employ shortcuts and rules of thumb that, uh, that may not work in every circumstance, but, but, uh, but work often enough to, to be useful. Um, system two includes all of the great powers of human reason and rationality, everything that we've ever accomplished uh, in, as an engineering or artistic achievement has required uh, some input from System 2, in some cases, tremendous input of System 2. But System 1, we have to watch out for. System 1, for all of its benefits, is capable of errors and mistakes. And so, so we keep our eyes out for that. Uh, now, looking back, we can we can point to Linda the bank teller uh, that problem from from the fifth lecture. Uh, here's a case where stereotyping was used as a heuristic, and with the clever wording of a, a question and a problem, we were moved to uh, to make a poor judgment. Um, if if system two had been engaged uh, more fully from the beginning we might have caught the inconsistency of our answers in that, in that case, that, that 
the bank teller category has to be larger by definition than the bank teller who is also a feminist uh, category. That one, that one by definition must be much smaller, and yet we miss that. Uh, that that uh, circumstance is called a uh, representativeness heuristic. Uh, Kahneman and Tversky gave it a name. The Linda is the bank teller problem uh, is is a, a case where we felt as though uh, she was that that being a feminist was more representative of someone with that description that she was given, and and so we do make judgments of specific cases on whether or not they are representative of what we think the whole should be, and that can get us into trouble. Uh, one way of thinking about the uh, the five or six heads flipped in a row problem is that we know what is supposed to be representative of a random coin flip. And what we know about it is simply that it's supposed to be even 50-50, right? Equally likely. What we fail to understand, and is a little bit more complicated point, is that 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 there will be many times when it deviates from that. It's, un, it's unrealistic to, to expect that a short sequence of coin flips will rep, be representative of what we know the whole of many, many coin flips to be. That's, that's a mistake. And I don't think that humans normally, most of us, have enough experience with the long sequences of truly random events to be able to recognize that there are fluctuations, there are long sequences of tails and heads in any random process, and so we expect them to be here, to be even. As I mentioned to you in a previous unit, when people were asked whether or not they could create a random sequence, and they wrote down heads and tails, they they had trouble doing it because they expected short sequences to alternate, and so they they alternated much more rapidly in their attempts to make a random sequence than actually happens in nature. And so, uh, so that representative heuristic can work in some cases, but these are examples uh, where it can, it can be uh, a mistake. Uh, the gambler's fallacy, also based on this random alternation idea, is another example of that. Uh, another uh, heuristic that we can talk about that falls into this system one uh, thinking is a simple way of judging the likelihood of, of an event, and it's called the availability heuristic. It's another system two, system one activity. It's a heuristic, so it's a system one activity, uh, and it's about judging the probability of, a, of an event on the basis of, of our ability to recall it. When, when it's called the availability heuristic, what they're talking about is the idea that it's available to you in memory when you think back about it. And, and if you're going to judge probability based on how well you recall examples of that event, then it better be the case that the examples have been presented to you in an unbiased fashion, or else you're in trouble. So consider the example of air travel. Many people are afraid to, to fly. Uh, I have friends who are afla- afraid to fly, uh, yet they get in their car every day and they drive around. And as we all know, 
your likelihood of dying in a car accident is much greater uh, than it is in an airplane accident. Now, there may be, there may be, uh, you know, other reasons why people are fearful of these of, of flying and less so of driving. But it's clear that one of the problems is the availability heuristic. When someone dies in a car crash, it is not news. Typically speaking, it does not end up in the news. We may, if we know the person, we may hear about it, uh, but but it's not going to be in the newspapers. Me- meanwhile, in contrast, if an airplane flies out, falls out of the sky, it is going to be covered by news media all over, and so so those cases are not missed. We are given a very biased presentation of those two kinds of of problems in transportation, and so so when people get on airplanes. It's easy to remember that the, you know, the crashes that you've heard about. When you get in your car to go to the grocery store, you know, there's very little memory of, of, uh, of any accidents. Now, as I say, there are probably other reasons that people are afraid of that, but, they, but, but that does play into it. It's obvious that, that the availability heuristic is, um, is at play. And it's also... Uh, uh, evident in a number of other things that we we uh, when we're judging probability. So so for example, people really have uh, incorrect views of how likely they are to die under a number of circumstances. Uh, this is a very cheery lecture today. I'm sorry about that. But but uh, a recent survey asked people about the likelihood of their their dying a violent death in their state. And the options given were uh, suicide by firearm, uh, homicide by firearm, murder by firearm, or suicide by non-firearm means, or uh, homicide by non-firearm. So there were four choices, uh, two, two involving firearms and, and, uh, and two involving suicide, two involving um, uh, homicide. Given those four choices, it turned out that only 13.5% of Americans could correctly identify the most likely form of violent death in their state. 13%. It's not very good. And the reason for that, of course, is that suicides are about twice as likely as homicides in this country. And, and suicide by firearm is typically the most common form of violent death because uh, suicides by firearm are very lethal. And, and the, the problem with judging that likelihood based on what you know and have seen is, uh, is that, of course, those events are not presented in an unbiased fashion to us. Homicides are news. Homicides have a culprit who needs to be tracked down and, and justice needs to be applied. The same is not true for suicides. Suicides are typically a more private event. There's no need to publicize them. There's no there's no fear for the community based on suicides, and and so they tend to be a quiet family tragedy and are not in the news. So so we hear much more about homicides. We're much more frightened by homicides, and and the idea that someone might impulsively take their own life is is not is not uh, covered. In general, when it comes to topics uh, 
involving uh, perception of risk of various diseases, death by diseases. I, I apologize. This is a very cheery part of the lecture, and I'm, we'll get through it, I promise. Uh, but the, but the uh, possibility of dying of various kinds of diseases takes an interesting trend. We tend to greatly overestimate our likelihood of dying from very rare causes, and we tend to underestimate our likelihood of dying from the more common causes. So, so for example, we underestimate the frequency of deaths by cancer and heart disease, some of the, the most common methods of death, where we greatly overestimate the rare cases of things like dying of a tornado or a flood or of botulism. So, and these undoubtedly have to do with the way this information is presented to us and our use of the availability heuristic. We, we rely on our memories of, of these events, and, and that, can be, that can be useful and good as a heuristic, but it, but it relies on the information being presented to you in the first place in an unbiased fashion, which it often isn't. Okay, so system one can create uh, uh, problems for us, the heuristics that we use. We have errors in judgment. Uh, it, sometimes it works well. Often it works well, and that's why we continue to use it. Uh, but it does rely on certain things, such as availability relies on unbiased exposure to the data. Uh, system two, of course, would prefer to have the actual base rates of events and know the numbers and do the calculations in order to, to uh, be able to solve the problem. Uh, I want to point out that uh, anchoring systems also are a kind of system one activity. Uh, many of the tasks involved are system two, uh, in the sense that we're trying to adjust, deliberately trying to adjust away from it, but the, the, the placing of the initial anchor is a system one kind of problem, um, and it takes a lot of work to work against it. Uh, so this is the case of the real estate assessment where a number was given and the realtors had trouble adjusting away from it uh, and, and things of that nature. Uh, I'm going to uh, talk about another kind of uh, problem that we have, a, a, a heuristic or uh, bias that we have, uh, which involves money. And this is one actually well-known to economists, and it's called uh, the sunk cost problem. Uh, and this is, again, a kind of a mental accounting problem. And it, uh, the same kind of problem of connecting things that probably shouldn't be connected to each other and, uh, and um, you know, being affected by things that should, we should put aside. So the idea of sunk cost can be can be illustrated with this classic case. Uh, I want to have you listen to the problem, and then, then you can answer what you would do in this situation. Problem one, as you, you are going, to, by the way, the setup is that you're going to the theater, uh, you're going to see some show, and here's the crucial part of the question right here. As you enter the theater, you discover that you've lost a $20 bill. In this case, you haven't bought the ticket ahead of time. Would you still buy the $20 ticket to see the show? So you haven't purchased a ticket yet. It's going to cost 
as you're going, you look in your wallet and you realize that you're missing $20, you've lost it, would you still buy a ticket? I think that uh, in that case, in a situation like this, about 90% of people say, yes, they'd still go ahead and buy the ticket. The two are not connected. It's a shame. It's too bad. And it's, and it's an equal amount to the ticket cost. But that's, that's not going to change my thinking. In the second version of the problem, uh, you have purchased your ticket in advance. You arrive, as you enter the theater, you discover that you've lost your ticket. There are still seats available. Would you now go ahead and spend $20 to buy a second ticket to replace the lost one and go to the movie or whatever it is, the theater? In this case, many fewer people said they would buy the ticket. Uh, they, 46% in one version of this story said they would buy, buy the second ticket. Uh, you, you should recognize that now that you've heard the two, that from a financial point of view, they're exactly the same situation. You, you're out 40 bucks no matter what. Uh, but the problem is the reason why people were reluctant to go to the, the theater that they probably would very much enjoy just as much is that suddenly the loss of the ticket is connected with the purchase of the new ticket. And so it is as if, as if the ticket costs $40. Clearly, the person in the first version of the scenario doesn't have any th- sense that the ticket costs $40. Uh, they have correctly not connected it. And, and the principle of sunk costs suggests that neither person should connect the two. Once, you, once you've spent $20, whether it's on a ticket or in losing it, that money is gone. And so it's not relevant to your decision going forward. The only thing that should affect your decision going forward is whether you want to make that transaction or not. And, uh, and so the, the very fact that there would be a shift in the percentage of people who would go forward based on these two scenarios indicates that there's a problem, that, that the people who said no in the lost ticket case were worrying about sunk costs. So this is a, a common problem, and it does uh, uh, cause a difficulty in real life. I will give you examples of this, but it has long been thought that uh, by, by economists long ago, as well as, uh, as behavioral economists more recently, that you should not allow costs that are, are, are gone and can't be returned to affect your decision-making in the future. It's a tough thing to do in certain circumstances. We're all human and we can understand. We make connections, sometimes connections that we shouldn't, but, but it is, uh, it is uh, true. Um, so these are some examples of, uh, of things that come from our dual processing uh, makeup. And so uh, this, this will help us going forward because I think you can recognize that um, that there are errors that system one makes and that, that um, uh, system two is better at doing the right thing but requires more effort and sometimes does not engage in and of itself. Uh, so, so we have to do that. And, and as we will see, uh, there are times when we are literally of two minds where both the systems are pulling at us uh, at the same time. And I think you can see that just to make that a little clearer, I think you can see that if you go all the way back to the beginning of the course, when we talked about the strawberry cheesecake example of, of should I or shouldn't I you know, eat that cheesecake, 
And also the case of changing the, the doctor's appointment on Friday the 13th, that, that the two systems are, are operating at the same time and pulling you in different directions, and it's hard to know what to do.